This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now look, y'all, it is crazy outside. There's all kinds of stuff going on. If you are working a nine to five, you're probably stressed out about keeping your nine to five. If you don't have a nine to five, you're probably in the middle of trying to get a new nine to five. Or maybe you made the crazy leap to be a full-time entrepreneur like me. You got the world on fire all around you, middle of elections year. A lot of stuff going on. It's just, it's absolutely nuts, right? It's nuts outside. And I could definitely see, I'll speak for me. Look, for me, I know I be going to therapy on a regular basis. I believe in therapy, all right? Hashtag uh, black folks need therapy. Hashtag we all need therapy. We all need it. And for me, I can say if it wasn't for therapy being like an ongoing maintenance tool in my toolkit to help me stay level and help me realize that I'm okay, everything around me is okay, here's what I can control, that has been critical for me. And I would hope that if you have thought about therapy, and if, or if you haven't thought about therapy, shoot, let's say you're like, like I ain't got time for therapy, I got, I'm too busy trying to make sure that these plates keep on spinning, I hope that you check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online. It's completely convenient, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, keyword licensed therapist, and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge, which is incredible. It's very challenging to move around and find the right therapist for you. The fact that BetterHelp is providing that as just part of your experience is incredible. So find your support, get the help you need with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash corp today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash corp, C-O-R-P. What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate, and it's a Tuesday. You know, it's interesting as a side note, y'all. You know, we we pride ourselves in uh, recording content in bulk, and you know, we we had a lot of different interesting content that we were gonna uh, we were gonna share, but because of just where we are, we had to really shift some things. So, thank you in advance for the folks being gracious with us, because I know we'll you know a little bit behind the scenes. You know, we'll tell folks you know when we post and things of that nature, and we've had to change a lot of different things just because of uh, where we are as a nation. And, um, you know, with that being said, y'all should know, um, if y'all don't know, maybe you're your first time listener, we actually are a platform that exists to center and amplify marginalized voices at work. And of course, again, considering where we are today, this work is all the more important. And we're really blessed and excited for the uh, the guest that we have today, Miss Pamela Newkirk. Pamela Newkirk is an award-winning journalist whose articles have been published in the New York Newsday, the New York Times, and other publications. Uh, she's written a book called Spectacle, which was named one of the best books of 2015 by NPR, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Boston Globe, and The Root. It won an NAACP Image Award. She's the editor of Letters from Black America and a love no less, more than two centuries of African-American love letters, and is the author of Within the Veil, Black Journalist, White Media, which won the National Press Book Club Award for Media Criticism. In addition to this, and we're really excited about to talk to her about today, she is the author of 2019 incredible seller, Diversity Inc., The Failed Promise of a Billion Dollar Business. Miss Newkirk, how are you? I'm fine considering all that's going on in the world. I, I hear you. I'm exhausted, frustrated, yeah. anxious. Yeah. I'm still somehow hopeful, though. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's kind of where I'm coming out on this. I, I have seen more 
progress over the past few days than I have in the 20 years that I've been writing about diversity and race and inclusion and like suddenly it seems to be breaking through and Mm. I think there is no longer a place to hide and to pretend you're innocent or ignorant about (laughs) what African Americans are living through day by day. I mean, you know, it, 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 as if the George Floyd, uh, travesty tragedy Mm. uh, was not enough we're still seeing constantly these videotaped images of police officers you know (laughs) brutalizing peaceful protesters so it's like suddenly it's all out in the open and while those of us who have been living this for our entire lives None of this is new to us. Right. We've been saying it. We've <laughs> right. we've been documenting it. Right. But for some reason, the the constellation of incidents, uh, you know, from Amy Cooper to Ahmad Arbery to then the most shocking, horrifying video of George Floyd being murdered on camera this you know continuing saga uh, mm-hmm. of the african-american experience to finally break through to the mainstream of white america yeah you know it's, it's interesting that you go there because um, i was i was curious you know in your book uh, diversity inc you talk about the adverse impacts of unconscious bias training and how it's been proven to be ineffective and yet that still seems to be like the mainstay or like for some organizations, like their crown jewel, like they build everything around unconscious bias, the concept yeah. of unconscious bias, training mm-hmm. around unconscious bias, right? Re- you know, language that that really focuses on bias only being unconscious, right? Um, it's like it's like drive through diversity, <laughs> you know, drive by <laughs> diversity. That's that's what um, the civil rights lawyer uh, Cyrus Mary calls it. It's like companies are willing to spend billions of dollars every year on all of the you know the apparatus of diversity but Hmm. they're not willing to devote money to interventions to actually (laughs) doing diversity actually hiring a diverse workforce it's not that complicated it's not rocket science and yet you know we live in a world where you can go on google and find out almost anything and yet even in major cities, companies pretend that they cannot find, <laughs> div- uh, you know, diverse candidates. It's it's really absurd. And I think, you know, the, the, the level of frustration and the number of people out on the streets is now really shining a bright light on injustice writ large. It's not only the injustice of police brutality, Racial injustice has just been normalized, you know, whether it's, you know, African-Americans dying of COVID at, you know, four times the rate of whites, whether it's like the the radical underrepresentation of African-Americans in in practically every professional field, you know, health disparities, you go down the line. Right. And we have for centuries normalized this as if it's like determined by God (laughs) that we should have, you know, these kinds of disparities when it really is a function of policies and practices that 
are human made, right? Right. Right. No, I agree with you. You know, I want to ask you a question about the book title um, mm-hmm. before we get to the next question. So, yeah. you know, is Diversity Inc. the failed promise of a billion dollar business? Can we talk about what promise corporate DNI right. has failed to deliver on? Oh, God, you name it. I mean, you know, <laughs> um, so, you know, in doing the book, I wanted to interrogate the tension between the rhetoric of diversity the apparatus of diversity, you know, the diversity czars and the diversity studies and the diversity reports and the diversity organizations and all of this, you know, this huge apparatus, you know, the climate surveys, the training. I wanted to look at all, you know, we're we're devoting so much time to that and why we consistently fail to achieve diversity. Like, what's going on? Why are we spending billions of dollars on something that has been shown year after year to fail? <laughs> like, right. like it, it, it just, it, it seems ludicrous, but yet, you know, you have a company like Google that will spend more than $100 million a year on diversity initiatives and year after year end up with a workforce in which African-Americans are like 2% of the employees in tech. Like, how do you spend that much money and fail so spectacularly year after year? And could that money instead be used to actually hire? (laughs) (laughs) Just just to hire people. Silly me. Like, 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 do you really need to train 30 and 40 and 50 year olds um, to think differently about people of color who and who are just like totally missing right. <laughs> in, in those spaces right how about bringing some of those people in those spaces and guess what they're going to have to learn how to deal with them they would be their colleagues right <laughs> like i don't need to be trained on how to deal with diverse populations but i do need a job and if i am in a work place that has people from different walks of life and different races and different, you know, whatever. I mean, I will learn how to deal with that. Um, I don't need to be trained. And, you know, it's interesting because to your, to your point, uh, we talk about this training. Um, it doesn't go anywhere. And frankly, I, I'm I'm frustrated by the space. And so as I continue, as I continue to look at it and I just, I see certain patterns and it seems almost like diversity and inclusion is a space where I'm going to paint with some broad brushes here, but you know what? It's my podcast and I can do that. So it seems, (laughs) (laughs) it seems as if diversity and inclusion as an industry is like a space where white women can go to like help them with their careers or to help give them certain levels of access or profile. So like I've, explicitly seen i've seen white women like at talk about diversity and inclusion at like these big platforms like like uh, davos right 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 but like they but and and, and and like they'll come up they'll stand up there and they'll say something fairly pedestrian if not outright obvious right. and 
and but they're they're applauded for it and it's like they're applauded by other white people so it's almost it's like a it's like a community within itself right like they they use a lot of language that we really don't understand and right and um, and 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 worse than that (laughs) i'm gonna go further go ahead (laughs) diversity has come to mean everything and nothing what is diversity? Most most institutions don't even agree on what diversity is. Diversity could be more women, more white women. Diversity could be more um, LGBTQ, and they can be white. Uh, diversity could be people with mental or physical, um, you know, um, uh, issues, and, yes. and, and and they could be white. So diversity can totally eclipse racial diversity and still to many institutions qualify as diversity um you know the diversity czar at apple went so far as to say 12 blonde blue-eyed white men could illustrate diversity because of their different backgrounds so this this diversity (laughs) has which is why in my book, I focus on racial diversity because I think race has sort of been set aside, you know, because supposedly after the election of Barack Obama, we were suddenly a post-race nation. Right. <laughs> you know, people are not saying that anymore. No, you know? no, they are not. <laughs> no, not not today, not but today. they were saying that, you yes, know. Yes, they were. You know, for, for eight years, and and here we are, you know, with the same issues and with the needle barely moving for decades in most influential fields, whether we're talking about journalism or academia or museums or the law firms, like look around and the, the while they all of these institutions will wave the diversity flag, very few of them are diverse. Right, right. And, and especially when you start looking higher and higher, right? So when you look at exactly when you start looking at the spaces where the, for the folks who actually make decisions, right? Um, and and really are responsible, for, like who own a PNL, like that's where you start just seeing. I mean, you may at best you may see a, a sprinkling of precisely non-white people. Let's not even say black people. We you might right. see a sprinkling of just non-white people, and so. Exactly. I, I'm curious, like when we talk about we talk about this space and you kind of alluded to it when you um, we talked when I asked you about, you know, how you're feeling and and talked about hope. Um, But I want to talk about the fact that we had Howard Bryant, um, ESPN senior contributor, NPR contributor on the podcast on Saturday. And I shared that I think right now is a watershed moment, essentially, essentially exposing how by and large inept diversity and inclusion is at really engaging black and brown employees explicitly and I'm, I'm curious do you think they were in such a moment you know i'm hopeful you know, mm. uh, you know of course you know the proof is going to be in the pudding you sure. know whether we actually see change but i do you know i i'm heartened by seeing so many white people even out on the streets you know protesting uh, you know, that's not something that we've seen. You know, Black Lives Matter has really been limited to <laughs> black and brown people who yeah. have been out there, you yeah. know, on the front lines of that battle. And it's almost as if white people have have like cast themselves as sort of innocent bystanders in this whole racial <laughs> conversation. <laughs> like they have like really nothing to do with it sure. when they have everything to do with it. Right. And so it's really... 
encouraging to me to at least see white whites engaging in a way that I have not seen in my lifetime. It's incredible that you say that. I was speaking to my father this morning and he said, son, I'm 55 years old. Mm-hmm. It's like, I've never seen this in my no. life. It's, I, I have. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. So here's what's, what's scary is it's, you know, police been beating us, you know, since antebellum, but to see white folks out there getting beat down. Yeah. And we have to remember, yeah, but we have to remember that white abolitionists were treated as badly. You know, well, during slavery, white abolitionists were killed, yeah. you know, just as readily as black people were. So that it's really not that unusual. Mm-hmm. What's unusual is that they're out there, you yeah. know, they're out there holding signs saying black lives matter. I mean, that that I, I do think it's a watershed moment just for that. You know, I think you could. There are people who are being really cynical about mm. the level of activism we're seeing, saying they're performing, sure. you know, uh, you know, racial politics or whatever. Sure. All I know is they hadn't done that <laughs> in all of the days of my life. And well, so the fact that many are now openly expressing their horror yeah. Uh, in a way that they should have all along. I sure. mean, no doubt. But the fact that they're doing it now, I welcome it because like, hello, welcome to, you know, your humanity. You know, we're all implicated in, in this and, and we black people should never have been the only ones to single out police brutality, racial inequality, the radical underrepresentation in all of these workplaces that, you know, injustice affects all of us. And I mean, I do understand that white people have benefited from inequality, but they're also paying the price of inequality as well. I mean, you know, no justice, no peace. Mm -hmm. There, There won't be peace in the land. You know, as long as you have a system that's so blatantly unjust. And so, you know, it's so you talk about white folks coming out and really supporting having Black Lives Matter. I'm going to tell you, Miss Newkirk, when I knew it was a thing was when them Amish came out there. (laughs) (laughs) How did y'all even get the word? What I I guess what got me was um, the the, all of the thousands of people in, in Berlin that, you know, in paris yes and that was London. huge yes like you know it's like australia yeah. even australia right i mean around the world you know the whole world is watching um and, you know and so we, we talked a little bit about kind of what we think this is um there are plenty of organizations right that are and, and i say this as someone who because of my network, I'm able to see, like, I know the diversity and inclusion consulting spaces and stuff out there, right? And I'm seeing mm-hmm. there's a, a sharp uptick in demand for. Oh my God. Something. Oh my God. My, my phone is ringing off the hook and I don't do diversity training. And I tell them I don't do diversity training. Yeah. If you read my book, you, you'd know how I felt about it. <laughs> <laughs> but I know a lot of people who do it and, you know, you're welcome to, like, speak to them. Sure. You know, I'm. I'm all in for a candid conversation about what you can do differently to change the game. Um, but I don't think it's something that you need someone in week after week. I mean, if that's going to help you get to a place where you actually, right. you know, create opportunity for non-white people, if right. that's what it's going to take, fine. But 
all of the studies have pretty much conclusively shown that training doesn't work. The numbers the data's out year after year shows that training doesn't work too because most Fortune 500 companies have been doing this this training for years and the numbers don't don't budge. And a lot of times they get worse. And, and and yeah, there's that Harvard study by Frank Dobbin that shows that these studies, especially when it's mandatory training, it triggers a backlash among white men who, instead of supporting diversity, it makes them even more resentful of it. Right. And, and, and even worse, the study, his study showed that um, five years after this training, the percentage of black women and Asian men and women actually decreased the, hmm. the numbers and management. So it, <laughs> why are companies doing the same things and expecting different results? And it's interesting because they're coming in and they're, they're doing that, right? Like the same training. I, I agree that ultimately the whole idea of we need to come and have a dialogue is frustrating because I feel like we've been dialoguing. So I'm 30 and I feel like we've been, we've been dialoguing for a long time. Oh my God! I mean, I've I've been in journalism and higher ed for more than thirty years, but the longer than you've been alive, and it's, it's the same conversation. It's the same conversation from you know the the nineteen sixties. Right. You know, and, and you know, I guess the optimistic way of looking at it is, in, you know, it, after the the uprising in the nineteen sixties, and when the doors finally opened to people of color in fields that had historically excluded them we did see you know the numbers jump up you know considerably we saw more african-americans latinos and others going to colleges um you know um entering fields that they had been excluded from yeah but as that progress became to metastasize then we came into the 80s and we had this backlash against diversity, you know, under Reagan. And we had, you know, this this systemic dismantling of every policy, every practice. All those social programs got gutted. Yeah. Yes. Everything got gutted. And then, you know, the backlash, we're still living in that backlash yeah. to the progress that had been made. So, you know, the interesting thing is that all of these institutions can turn on a dime when they're ready yeah. when they want to like we're seeing companies now suddenly devote millions of dollars i just heard bain is going to you know devote a hundred million to you know black causes and all of these things are suddenly happening so it's so easy <laughs> for yeah. them to to turn it around to open that spigot but what has been lacking is the leadership, the will, and the intention. Yeah, yeah. And and, and to your point, like we've seen, you know, these organizations, a lot of these organizations, these big ones, like they're, they solve big problems. They solve yes. really big problems. And so, but, but the frustrating thing for me, I think, is that we treat racism as an abstract, right? So we, right. we will say things like, well, we just need to open our hearts and minds. Like we don't really actually need to open our hearts and minds. We just need to tie these things back into tangible outcomes, you know, create and add new policies that hold and drive accountability, increase transparency and make certain demands and expectations. Right. I, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm alluding back to the Saturday episode, but it's, it's just fresh in my mind because I think about the fact that um, Howard Bryan, he said, he said, look, you know, the reason you come in, you don't you don't sexually harass somebody isn't you know, it may be because you're a decent person. 
Um. <laughs> <laughs> it may be, and it, it may be because you'll get fired. You know that there's going to be consequences and repercussions if you come in here acting stupid, harassing women, or harassing anybody, uh, saying saying something inappropriate. You know that. And and do you need a training program to tell you that? I, I genuinely don't, and I I, I I loathe every single one of them. Yeah. Um, but you're right. Yeah. And the thing is, it's not even that I'm just so against the idea of training, even though I kind of am. Sure. But <laughs> if there was anything, any proof that they actually helped <laughs> realize diversity, I'd be all about it. Yeah. You know, there are measures that we know work. And I, I just don't understand why we keep doing something that has not borne fruit and we ignore the things that do and that leads me to believe that there's not an honest intention to actually realize diversity i agree so some of it to me is like when you talk about like programming for diverse equity inclusion um it, you know it, it's typically some type of instructor-led training but a lot of studies continue to show um that being able to have authentic conversations and build stories again tying and really having the critical conversations to tie goals and values to policy is really mm-hmm. what drives results but right. but but we're not we're, st- we're just still not there yet um right i'm curious again there's plenty of organizations who are just now trying to build like some type of office right some type of council or um department or whatever you want to call it um what would you say are some of the biggest mistakes folks and i say folks i mean organizations commit when they try to launch initiatives or departments or groups like this yeah i think the biggest mistake is that the leadership sort of farms out this diversity issue to the most marginalized person in the organization which is usually the diversities are the diversity, you know, whatever, whatever they call the diversity uh, uh, professional right. in that organization. Usually that person is the most marginalized executive on the team. It's usually a person of color or a woman, and they usually don't have much power. And so don't do that. And if you're going to do that, if you're going to go that route, then you have to empower that person to actually get results. Um, one thing that we've, we've seen from studies, um, there was a study done uh, a, a year ago, a survey of Fortune 500 DNI professionals, and I think it was some, somewhere around, yeah, 65% did not even have access to the metrics, the diversity metrics in the organization they work for so how could they hope to fix a problem that they can't even see and, and right no absolutely <laughs> absolutely and it, well, so they're, they're, a, they're, they're shooting in the dark it's um, well, yes we, no, keep going, we know the most effective way to tackle a diversity problem is first to have transparent metrics across job categories across you know bonus systems any kind of award systems who's getting who's not Right. You know, if you have to look under the hood and see what's actually happening in these companies, because we know with unconscious bias, you can keep blaming everything on unconscious bias. But whether it's conscious or unconscious, let's see how it's working in your organization. Right. 
only then can you hope to even have an intervention. You know, whether it's in your promotion system, it's your hiring system, it's looking at, you know, who's even being interviewed for positions, you know, what kind of outreach are you doing? So you have to have transparent metrics across the board is the first step. And once you do that, then you can hope to have the kind of interventions that will allow you to to actively address the problem. It's what um, I, I do a chapter on what happened at Coca-Cola after they were sued for racial discrimination. And they said it, it, part of the settlement was having this task force that oversaw what they were doing to correct um, the problem. And over five years, they were able to make substantial improvements through a system of transparent metrics and accountability. And, and, you know, it's interesting because I think when we talk about metrics and it goes back just to the lack of inclusion in this work, when you talk Mm -hmm. about metrics, it presumes that the people who are measuring understand what they're measuring for. Right. Right. And so like, you know, but if you if you have a group which we've and there's plenty plenty of articles, you know, op-eds, analysis, like reports, all kinds of things about just how behind the majority population is on matters of race. Right. So then why would that same population then be responsible for measuring <laughs> the nuances of race? And diversity? Are you saying the, 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 the fox guarding the chicken coop? Is absolutely. Absolutely. It is. I well, mean, yeah, I mean, you have to. Right. So if if you're not allowing the person charged with increasing diversity, if you're not giving them access to those numbers. Right. You know, you're hiding something for one thing. Right. right? And you're handcuffing them. There's no way that they can hope to correct those issues without having that kind of information. I mean, that's just basic to to their job. But yet you talk to most DNI people and they don't have access to that. And what's and what's also interesting about that is that I'm, I'm just there's so there's different levers, right? Because the other piece you, you talked about power and I've been living corporate has been a bit more intentional in calling out like the ethics of power and how all of these things work, right? Because he just rarely ever see the person who's really driving diversity, equity, inclusion, be somebody that really has authority. And they're not respected in the space because typically their role is something internal that they're, they're, you know, they're not necessarily driving any type of revenue. And so, um, so they're not going to really be heard. And on top of that, sometimes compounded is the complexity that you have organizations that will get somebody who's, you know, they'll get somebody who is black or brown, but again, make them junior. So it's not only are they not, they don't have the formal hierarchical power. They don't even have the social capital that comes with being white to really navigate and do their jobs well, because they're, you know, oftentimes tokenized. Right, right. No, it really comes down to leadership because in, in any organization, people know what matters and what doesn't matter, right? Right. <laughs> you know you know if a person really has power, if they just have a, a title. Like, right. it, it, it's not hard to figure out, you know, who you have to respect and who you can ignore and, you know, what they stand for. So it really does come down to leadership and if leaders are going to continue to farm this issue out to marginalized people be they consultants or you know a diversity person who really has no power you know we're not going to see any any progress in that space and i mean looking at 
you know, all of these fields that have not changed in all of this time, that yeah. has to be willful. And so it's going to take will to change that. And I hope we're living in a time now where people realize that, you know, this, this is not a sustainable situation. It's not. And it actually leads me to my next question. I want to quote an excerpt from your book. The quest for racial diversity has long been an uphill crusade, but now it's waged in a far more polarized climate in which many whites now claim they are being disenfranchised as others are afforded undue advantage. An NPR poll conducted in 2017 found that 55 percent of white Americans believe they are discriminated against. While tellingly, a lower percentage said that they actually have experienced discrimination. A Reuters survey in 2017 found that 39% of whites polled agreed with the statement that, quote, white people are currently under attack in this country, end quote. So I'm quoting this because the reality of this, I believe, is still showing up in 2020, and that a significant percentage of white DNI experts, quote unquote, they have the opinion that white folks, particularly white men, need to be included. Um, because if you don't include them, then you're you're essentially violating your own principles by excluding them. Um, and, and so I'm curious, like, especially as we see an uptick in focusing on black lives um, and really working, you know, there's a, there's a lot of folks downloading and buying books on um, anti-racism and like, you know, there's a really, you know, there's a there's a push for that right now. Um, do you see this trend increasing? Oh, definitely. But I mean, we're just weeks into it. So. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> so, so I can't tell you where it's where it's where it's headed, you know, but, you know, I see that as a good thing, you know, because, you know, for years, for decades, you know, African-Americans and other scholars of color have been journalists have been doing this work. And oftentimes we're preaching to the choir, you know, um, and now to see so many whites leaning in to to this scholarship and to the idea of anti-racism, not only, you know, relating to members of, you know, skinheads or the Ku Klux Klan, but could implicate the average white person, right. <laughs> you know, that, you know, you know, reading uh, Robin DiAngelo's work, you know, yeah. White Fragility, yeah. she she talks about, you know, the ways in which whites perpetuate white supremacy, but they do it in a way that they feel they're just neutral in it. They don't see how they are helping by either their silence or by just holding these deeply embedded ideas about race and merit and who's, you know, who actually deserves um, the kind of privilege that many whites enjoy. Like, are they African-Americans? Maybe there are a few who they see as deserving the kind of privilege that they enjoy, but that's the exception not the rules. So these ideas are so deeply embedded in the in the in the white American psyche that it, it will take a, a you know some time to to kind of dismantle an ideology that has been rooted in the history of this country, hmm. right? From yeah. the very beginning. And these ideas did not bubble up from the ground up. They they were taught in places like Harvard and Princeton and Yale and Columbia University. You know, so yeah. so you know, this whole idea of science, you know, w- was rooted in, in this hmm. this notion of African 
inferiority yes. and European superiority. Maybe skull size and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, so we're not that far removed from that. It's that that ideology is still very much a part of 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 the American, you know, um, ethos. Yes, and 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 until that is exposed and examined by the people who hold that those ideas we're, we're going to continue to to see it play out in in so many ways you know and to your point when we talk about racism you know there are folks who i have you know colleagues associates whatever right and we'll talk about racism and a lot of times we'll talk about it like in forms uh, like it's out there like it's right. it, it's out there like that's you know that's why George Floyd because of systemic racism that's why George Floyd was was murdered in the street on camera and um, right. with 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 no accountability until we had right. riots but the challenge and I think the next step as we look at this work to your point around like really addressing and interrogating it is analyzing what the same systems that allow those types of things to happen the Amy Coopers of the world right um, those those systems persist here too in work exactly and it's being able to to kind of position yourself within the space yeah. like where are you like how do you benefit from this system and what do you do with your privilege and yeah. it's not enough just not to be actively racist <laughs> like right, right in what ways are you anti-racist in right. what ways are you working to dismantle injustice and that's the next step for the the so-called decent whites who, right. who I don't think are you know actively racist right. but they're complicit in and a, a racially unjust system right through their silence through their inaction um, they they work in these spaces and they're not they're not using their their forms and their positions to tackle something that is so persistent and perverse and you know because i've just started really thinking about again like connecting uh historical racist ideologies and beliefs um in america and then like how they show up at work and so like an example that i think about and i i'm not a researcher and i've like i've talked to some friends like i really want to put some research together on this but like so when you think about the history of um, black women and how they've been treated in this country and Mm -hmm. how essentially there's been all kinds of writing on how there was a belief that essentially black women, black people across the board, but black women specifically, they don't feel pain in the same ways that white women. Oh, do, right. right. The black superwoman. Yeah. The black superwoman. Right. And so, in <laughs> fact, a lot of the understandings that we have about the female anatomy comes from the abuse of black female slaves. Mm-hmm. But this idea that, you know, black women are just are tougher and like stronger um, inherently or biologically. Um, right. You know, and, and we see that in sports, right? We like Serena Williams is like a classic example of that. We just, right, you know, right. we think that she, she and, wh- and wh- why, also why she wasn't heard and she almost died when she was when she had her child. But right. but I think that that mentality and that attitude it persists in the workplace as well, and it, and it shows up in the workplace by way of black women being overworked right. and being underappreciated. Um, right. Well, it's you know it's what history has demanded of us, right? Right. right. We had to be stronger. Like, right. what was the alternative to that? Being right. beaten more, being raped more, being... Right, <laughs> right. So, you know, paradoxically, it's partly true <laughs> right. that that's why we're still here. <laughs> right. No, well, right, by means of survival. It's uh, right, right. But, you know, we haven't been given the opportunity to show 
weakness and to cry when mm-hmm. things happen, things go wrong, you know, like <laughs> that, that fragility right. <laughs> that, right. that may be accorded a white woman doesn't work for us. And I think we could find like similar, I guess my point is like that the meta narrative doesn't stop. And like, so exactly. when, when you talk about systemic racism, if it's, if some, so I'm, I'm the son of an English teacher. So like, I'm very sensitive about words, right? So like, if you're mm-hmm. going to use some, a word like systemic, right. then be comfortable with interrogating the concept that whatever you're talking about reaches as far as you can see and beyond that. Exactly. And so, you know, when we talk about, like we just talked about with science and the, a lot of the racist concepts and considering that black folks were inherently inferior. Um, right. And, like, and I mean, those ideas are still debated and you they're know, still debated, you know, just like, it was True. like 10, 10 years ago, maybe it was a little more than that, when Newsweek and Time had like this big debate going about the, you know, the bell curve. People uh, still talk about the bell curve. And, and people still do. And I mean, and so it's like, still it's, with us. If, if, if it's, if, Even if it's not as polite today. Right. To, it's still here. It's still very much with us. Even if people don't say it, that that ideology persists. Exactly. And so it's like, okay, if not only was this like at one point in time, this was rigorous, firmly accepted, widely globally accepted academic truth. And now it's waned into being impolite conversation. Precisely. But still true. But still, but still, (laughs) right. But still believed to be true. But it's PC to now say it. (laughs) Right. So it's not unreasonable then to believe that majority counterparts presume or have some conscious or unconscious beliefs that black people are inferior that and and that comes up in language like they're not as strategic or they're not as they don't think as critically whatever but it's it's subtle and they they're not they're natural athletes or natural or it's like nothing comes out of a thinking right (laughs) place they're 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 creative but they're not right they're not you know strategic right and and it it shows up in a lot of genteel language but right um you talked about robin d'angelo and you talked about white fragility you know we had it on the podcast a little while ago and, uh, and you shared it actually on Twitter. Thank you for that. I, I did because I think it's so timely. Uh, it is. And, and when we talk about white fragility and for the sake of just kind of level setting, right, the, it's essentially uh, the low fluency and resilience of white folks that uh, have with regards to engaging matters of race, especially discussing where they may be the perpetrators of conscious or unconscious racist behaviors. Um, just but, for, then think, but then think about it. Yeah. There are no penalties for them not knowing so much about the history of race in this country. It's true. You know, I, I've written about this that, that you know, you could do a, a doctorate, a postdoc, and never have to meaningfully confront the history of, of race in this country. Yeah. You know, you don't have to know about what happened to the, the Irish and what happened to, you know, Italians and, and Greek people at the turn of the century and how they, you know, they were demeaned. And the, you don't have to know how race operates and how it is like just so deeply embedded in the whole system of this country. And so because you may know who some of the um, major contributors to American history were who happened to be African-American. They never have to know. They don't have to know who Frederick Douglass is, Booker T. Washington, like all of the people who I grew up just knowing because my parents taught me. <laughs> right. 
I would never be penalized on the SAT for not knowing that. I would so they've been able to skate through life without understanding why it is that we have this kind of systemic imbalance around race. And they think it's because of merit. They think it's because they worked harder. (laughs) They think, you know, they think, well, slavery was abolished in the 1860s. So what's the problem? We've had all this time. They don't look at the ways in which that system is still very much actively working against any kind of racial equality. Right. You know, racial justice. And so when you're like just ignorant and not penalized for that ignorance Mm. like it's it's not totally (laughs) the fault you know i have white students who sometimes are in tears in my class i teach a class that examines the history of racial portrayals of marginalized groups yeah and they say how how is it that i'm in college and i never learned any of this history like Mm. like it's not their fault you know, because only those who choose to elect, and these are electives <laughs> that, that they would take to learn about this, right. it, it's not required. Like these courses are so marginalized and they're so important for white people to have a sense of all of the ways in which they have been privileged throughout history. Yes. Without knowing that, they're blithely <laughs> just <laughs> ignorant. Well, and to your point, though, right? Like you have this group who, you know, so let, let's talk about like the workplace. So you have this group that has never had to really critically engage around race, never had to engage around how their own behaviors have right. been harmful to to folks that don't look like them. Now, right. all of a sudden, no matter for how long, let's, you know, like you said, this just really got started, right? We're, this is exactly. really... You know, but, but <laughs> yeah, we're just a couple weeks in. But let's say let's say this goes on for, I don't know, two years, whatever. Um, right. You know, uh, suddenly there's going to be <laughs> you go from running at a like to not moving at all to almost running at a rabbit's pace. Right. And, and I'm I'm curious about with the current climate focusing on black people, black experiences and um, really continuing to unpack that. Um, how would you advise like a majority white leadership space mitigate burnout because they just don't have their again we talk about white fragility they don't have the um, the bandwidth they don't have the bandwidth and they don't have the <laughs> they don't have the cardiovascular right to keep up well, you, you know i think they do okay you know I, I i think these institutions have been so afraid to engage these matters and now they're seeing the consequences of their kind of hands-off policy you know, you know, we've gotten, we, we've made the progress we have made due to uprisings in the 1960s yeah. because all of that scholarship was out there then, but no one listened until buildings started burning and, yeah. <laughs> you know, where people started feeling kind of, you know, unsafe. Yeah. And then suddenly everyone leaned in to live. Hmm. And I think we're in that same kind of space right now where... I think people are honestly leaning in. I mean, I've gotten notes over the past uh, week from colleagues who, you know, kind of didn't really, I guess they saw me as kind of 
a radical. And now all of a sudden they're seeing my ideas as mainstream. <laughs> they are. Yeah. So they're writing me and it's like, wow, you know, you were prescient or you were, it's like, no, I wasn't. You just, you weren't paying attention. Yeah. You all of the, everything yeah. that we're seeing has been happening all along. Nothing is new. The only thing that has changed is that white people are suddenly acknowledging the truth that has been with us all of this time. So now that they are, I do believe that we can begin to, you know, first of all, there's so much out there. There's so many scholars of color and professionals of color and people who are ready to like get in there, right? And contribute to all of these institutions that have ignored them, devalued them, <laughs> you know, not hired them. Right. You know, these institutions are about to be enriched, you know, if they truly embrace mm. the diversity that is available, you know, well-trained, well-educated, well, you know, just ready, ready to jump in and help these organizations become more just places. And I, I do believe that if they continue to lean in in, in the ways um, in which they have over the past few weeks, I think a lot of good can come from, from this moment. And do you think, I, and let me ask this then. So do you think that that will offset the amount of folks who are uncomfortable and end up, you know, going elsewhere or under, you what know, mean? yeah. So what I mean is like, do you think that the amount of folks that, that come in and, and they deliver learning and, and folks grow and, and they increase black and brown engagement and through hiring and of course like retaining the talent that they have do you think that that will offset the amount of white folks who will just find all of this offensive and disengage you you mean you mean like the 57 police officers in um buffalo <laughs> yes, yes timely. it's resigned yes because they were supposed to held accountable their colleagues were suspended yes. for like critically injuring a 75 year old man yes white man <laughs> Goodness gracious, guys. Yes. I mean, you know, I don't think that's going to happen. I, okay. I, you know, because first of all, people need employment. Yep. And uh, yeah, you know, I think that you're always going to have that percentage of, you know, just straight up white supremacists sure. who are not going to be in spaces where there are people of color and, you know, good riddance. But, <laughs> um, Amen. but I don't think I don't think that's going to be um the biggest uh, roadblock to having diverse environments I, because I don't think they're going to give up all of these fields, you know, <laughs> I don't think they're just going to suddenly say, Oh, here, <laughs> take my privileged, uh, you know, position at this law firm or in, sure. you know, in, in, in this company. But um, no, I, I think people can learn to, to, work together. In fact, I think that is the the best way to condition people to deal with different kinds of people is just to put them in the same space where they see that, oh, this person is not like a Martian. This person actually has kind of similar values. Like, And then they begin to see that there was nothing that frightening to begin with. But I think when you continue you know we live in a rigidly segregated society mm. and most white people don't have to be in spaces where there are people of color and, and particularly people of color 
who are peers. Yeah. You know, they may be in the mail room or you know, right. deliver their food or but to to have people of color who are your peers, many white people don't don't have that experience and they certainly don't have that experience of having um, people of color who are neighbors, who, who go to the same church, who, you know, go to the same, you know, the, the, we're, we live in such segregated worlds. And so th- this, that kind of segregation becomes a self-replicating situation in the workplace, right? Yeah. Because people hire who they know, they hire who their friends recommend, they hire from this very closed off uh, world. And until you can break that up, <laughs> you know, and have a far more diverse workplace, you're going to continue to have that kind of self-replication. Ms. Newkirk, this has been incredible. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Before we let you go, any parting words or shout outs? Well, you know, I guess the thing that I'm most hopeful about is that there are successful models that can be readily replicated and if and if institutions truly want to embrace diversity they need to just stop doing what they've been doing (laughs) and lean into models that have proven to be successful there you have it y'all uh this has been uh living corporate like we do this every single week we're having real talk in the corporate world um, and we center and we amplify marginalized voices at work by having black and brown thought leaders of all types of varieties on the platform. You make sure you check us out. Just Google Living Corporate. I ain't about to shout out all the places that we own because we all over Barack Obama's Internet. So just type in Living Corporate and you'll catch us. Uh, until next time, this has been Zach Nunn. And you've been listening to Pamela Newkirk, award winning journalist, educator, speaker and author. Peace, y'all. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.